<laughs> Today's episode of Bandology is brought to you by Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is a great one-spot go-to for uploading and distributing your podcast across the internet. They'll take care of putting your show up on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and dozens of other smaller services that you probably don't even know about. All you have to do is set up an account, which is free, and Anchor also 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 will set you up with sponsors so you can do ads like this one to start earning money on your podcasts right away so check it out anchor.fm and if you're just looking to stream podcasts download their app from your app store of choosing that's anchor.fm or the anchor podcast app check it out spread the word and enjoy spotify i mean anchor i mean bandology Welcome to Bandology episode two. This is exciting. Actually, this might be. Uh, wait, hold on. We're running. <laughs> Bandology. So I think arc two, possibly episode three. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. We're making this up as we go you along. Know, I'm gonna see. You know, we're, we we dragged out the animal collective career of like what, fifteen years out of like two hours, and then we're gonna try and condense today's episode on ministry. Exciting. Which is like a 35 year career <laughs> at this point into an hour. Let's see if I can bang through it. Oh, ministry with side projects. Mike, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right. This is so exciting. We're yeah. uh, both working guys and we have a lot of breaks in between recordings. So it's always <laughs> nice to be in a room. Because someone you. had to go on vacation. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I went on a two week <laughs> vacation. That's true. That was my fault. But you got to go to the Moog factory. So that's, that's totally rad. Huge shout out to my friend Ian Vigstead for giving me a tour of the Moog factory, which, uh, oh man, I was ready to just quit my job here in Western Mass and just move down to Asheville <laughs> and work in the warehouse. That was really cool. I know. When they went, co- when they went, became like a worker on cooperative, I was like, oh man, I totally need to get down to Asheville and do that. It, it was pretty rad. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited that, uh, you're in the seat now today, and I get to be the dweeb who knows nothing. I get to be the dween. The dween. You're the dween. <laughs> You're the dean today. I'm the dean. The original pitched idea of the show is the dean and the dween. <laughs> <laughs> this is originally how the show is supposed to go, but now we're at Bandology. You're Mike Barrett. I'm John Sheena. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, so today we are starting with ministry. So I've been reading the his memoir that you got for me. Uh, happy birthday thank you (laughs) happy birthmas happy birthmas and uh so it's interesting to see a ministry was always such a um anti-establishment iconoclastic um you know personal is political kind of punk rock mentality very very sarcastic very pretty nihilistic in a lot of ways but always pretty tongue-in-cheek and you know as a teenager in the 90s that was that was the zeitgeist of the time they kind of hit and struck a chord at the you know there's right place right time and reading the biography or memoir of al jurgensen it's interesting to see like how much he really hated playing those games but was always you know he's such an industry player because he knows that's how he just makes his money and it avail it enables him to be in the studio making the music he wants to make so what i'm hearing is he's kind of like a businessman he has uh, no delusions on what it is to be a professional musician and what it is to be a rock star. And as we're going to talk about with his drug addictions and everything and the constant chip on his shoulder he's always had from the way with Sympathy happened and he just kind of started out with a bitter taste in his mouth with the recording industry. I think he just realized that there's a point you can only be a musician or he want, he could only really be... He's one of those people that could only be what he is, and he understands that there's a game he has to play in order to be successful at that. Now, I'm I'm sitting in the seat today where I don't know much about ministry, and you're going to explain everything, their whole discography, or as best we can today. But right off the bat, I'm hearing maybe this sounds like a lot like Trent Reznor and Marilyn Manson, and kind of they work the industry, they know the role they're playing, they're working off of the media. Is that kind of what you're saying a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think he really, like, ink, maybe more like Trent Reznor, because Trent Reznor is a little bit more, is a bit of a hermit himself, uh, whereas Marilyn Manson is really into the shock persona. <laughs> but both of, but both of them would not have careers if it wasn't for ministry. 
totally. That excellent. <laughs> you know, so that's like the thing that. where it's like, okay, nine inch nails, and it's like we're gonna talk about you know how Trent Reznor is kind of a, a ministry fanboy, and he basically took like pretty hate machine. He hired the same producer that did Ministry's 1986 album Twitch, and basically took his whole album and like did it as a straight ripoff of like three of the songs on there. Not like, oh, I'm gonna do that, but like he was just like that was he was really into, and he was just like, this is what I want to do. But it's like, yeah, there's like these three Ministry songs that he's basically really emulating. So let's let's do a little time machine rewind. Where were you in fall of 1991? How old were you? Oh, it's, uh, I was 10. You were 10. Okay. So I was like, uh, yeah, I turned 14 that, that year. And November 1991, Ministry release. This is like their fourth album that was coming out at that time was their fourth label on Sire. All their major albums were on major labels. But they're still like totally an underground band back when Sire and, you know, major labels would work underground Yeah, bands. Apex Twin was on Sire, I remember. That. Yeah, they would be, you know, Smith's, Jesus and Mary Chain, Depeche Mode, like there's that whole Dinosaur Jr., the whole college radio alternative scene that kind of spawned out of punk rock and new wave was still a really strong current through the 80s into the early 90s. But yeah, it was the 90s. Metal was changing, um, alternative music was becoming bigger, grunge was on the verge of breaking, Soundgarden already got had like their, you know, their first two albums on A and M out. Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit was just hitting the radio, and as that whole climate, you know, people talk about like this watershed year, and just imagine being like a fourteen-year-old metalhead, just kind of getting tired of Metallica and Iron Maiden, and uh, did you hear this on the radio? Sandwich between like Sebado and Dinosaur Junior. Ding a ding dang, my dang along ling long. that in the background so we can we can discuss over it um wait here's a here's <laughs> i want to love you that's that's just the tight lead into a guitar solo <laughs> anyway um <laughs> you know like i was i was a teenage metalhead and i was just starting to get into like death metal and metallica was getting you know metallica's black album was out and right. that album was like that was slower than this. That was like that was like the first Metallica album that came out after I discovered Metallica, and I was like, this kind of sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I love it because it's poppy and it's got great hits on it. But I, if, yeah, if you're if you're a Ride the Lightning fan, then yeah, totally. Like, still, my favorite Metallica album is the Garage Days Revisited EP, but and it's a covers album. But we can get into that another time. Um, Alas, we won't have to do a Metallica Yeah, album so, like, ever. this is, like, I'm, like, in my bedroom uh, in Western Mass, where we are in the early 90s. There was an immense powerhouse culture of college radio stations, and where my parents' house was kind of on a hillside, I could get them from 
Amherst, uh, Holyoke, and the station from Stores, Connecticut, actually got really good reception at my parents' house. So it's just like what I, I think we talked about this in the last, in the early on in the Animal Collective. It's like when I found out that there was something aside from WAAF and the classic rock station, I just like, I just gave up on that. <laughs> and it was like, it was this year. Um, so, you know, I'm like, oh, cool. Like, starting to hear Dinosaur Jr. and like early Smashing Pumpkins, just like, all that stuff that was really kind of starting to bubble up and then it's just like this guitar riff comes on and it's that oh shit I gotta call my friend Morgan and tell him about <laughs> this song <laughs> you know I'm a little jealous of you being four years older than me I hit Nirvana when I was in third grade fourth grade and you were actually able to see all these bands and you were I'm so jealous oh man like Nirvana played in Springfield and the night of the show one of I had, you know, there was the group of friends that were going, and then I was going to this little party of kids that weren't going, and then I get a phone call like a half hour before I was supposed to go over to my friend's house, and they're like, oh, hey, uh, we got an extra ticket to this. Do you want to go? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'll go see Nirvana. <laughs> hey, mom, dad, can I go see Nirvana? No. You have plans to go hang out with your other friends tonight. You can't cancel them. What? Right? This is my parents. They're kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's that's Jesus built my hot rod. Um, Is that their biggest hit to date? Uh, yeah, I think that was the that was like that was the song that came out about eight months before Psalm sixty nine, which was their Lollapalooza tour album. And um, yeah, I don't think they had a song that was well. We can get into the arc of it, but yeah, no, that was their big, definitely their biggest hit. Um, they've definitely not lost the cult following that they developed at that time you know as i'm sitting here 40 years old talking about <laughs> this song that i Sorry, loved when i was a teenager uh <laughs> there's a lot of nostalgia this yeah I know. me too man me it, too it happens and yeah. it's um that's what we're here to talk about you know i realized that i'm the guy that talks about the 90s uh the way that like guys my age would have talked about the 60s when i was a teenager i've been uh I've been helping uh, transcribe that other music doc- documentary, and I'm hearing a lot of people talk about the music industry as a whole. And, you know, the 90s was before the Internet. I mean, it was such a great time to – you had to discover music. Right. You had to kind of, like, dig for things. And I remember going to the library and, like, looking up interviews from them from, like, whatever magazine I could find, like, in the database and just printing out dot matrix like <laughs> pages from, like, those black and green computer screens. We are losing our younger audience <laughs> if we do that one. <laughs> You know, people talk about the daughter party with nostalgia, and it's like, I was, it was like this whole other level of, like, pre-internet computer usage. Uh, back before computer, computer monitors were even color. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, let's get on with it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was, I heard that, and I lost it. So the song was called Jesus Built My Hot Rod. Yeah. Was that like the first hit off the album? What album are we talking about? Yeah, Psalm 69. Psalm that 69. Was like the, that was their big breakout album. That's like the one that sold like 75 million copies. That's a lot of um, copies. Yeah. That's the one that put them on tour in Lollapalooza. And yeah, it was a really intense album. We'll get we'll get back to it because I'm going to kind of bounce around the chronology here. Cool. Because uh, I'm going to keep it with like, you know, kind of my personal introduction into the band. So Jesus Built My Hot Rod also had vocals from Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers. Wild. Which was really, you know, I probably already knew the Butthole Surfers by name from the radio at that point and kind of recognized his voice. So you have like this great little nonsensical intro. It's like, oh, I'll just play the intro again so we can hear it. Was that Gibby? That was Gibby, the whole thing. Oh, okay. Soon I discovered that this rock thing was true. Jerry Lee Lewis was the devil. Jesus was an architect previous to his career as a prophet. All of a sudden... I found myself in love with the world, so there was only one thing that I could do, was ding-a-ding-dang, my dang-a-long-ling-long. You know, Mike, you're playing this, and you just have the biggest <laughs> smile on your face. It's just, like, such a goofy thing, like, ding-a-ding-dang, but it's like that's, like, such, like, a rockabilly kind of, like, handle to say. Honestly, I, I wasn't so into the, the intro, but now that you're explaining it to me, and that's Gibby and... Again, for our listeners, it's the Butthole Surfers, yeah. which we might need to do an episode on. I'm not really familiar with we them. We should. They're, they're a pretty fascinating band. They are. I just picked up uh, my, uh, our friend Eric Natu gave me the copy of This Band Could Be Your Life. And I haven't got to the Butthole Surfers chapter yet. But also, I mean, quickly, I'm guessing, is ministry in the same... I and mean, they must be friends if... if they were, uh, they, they were friends. Out. Or they became friends. 
I'm guessing they're they're two fucking yeah. Mad they're men. just they're just drug addled madmen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, Al Jurgensen was up in Chicago, and the butthole servers are down in Austin, and just kind of both doing like these parallel worlds, just kind of psychedelic mayhem, totally psychedelic nihilistic mayhem, like just tearing through the U.S. And at some point, you know, they crossed paths. They probably played some shows together, and Gibby Haynes ended up in Chicago Strack Studio while they were working on the record. He got hammered. They propped him on a stool. They played the riff, and he just like rambled off the stuff, the off the lines, like in a drunken stupor, fell off the stool, and they cut the end of the tape. And you know, as a musician, I'm always really intimidated when recording because the stories like that, like he was on the stool rambling, and then all of a sudden, it's music history. Yeah, like, like this is their their biggest song. Yeah. I've, I've actually heard this is one of the few songs that I've actually heard. It's it well, is. it's crazy because they're in the the memoir. He's talking. They talk about how. Oh, they they burnt through so much money because they were just doing so much heroin and coke. And it was just like you know, like a thousand dollar a day habit, uh, and just camped out in the studio. And their the recording was moving really slow. The album took like fifteen months to make. And the label Holy was, shit, that's longer than the black album by Metallica. Yeah, yeah. So and the <laughs> label was like pressing them for like you know, got to make this album. We're you know, we need to get something out there. And they just gave them this track as a single. And they're like, this is what we have. And they're finally just like, you know what? Fine, screw it. We'll take it. And then that Holy signal, shit. then that single blew up. And then the label's like, okay, here's like an extra hundred, here's like an extra 75 God grand or something the like that. Recording industry of the 90s. <laughs> this is back when records would actually sell. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> there was actually like money moving around that they could like drop like $300,000 into basically what they thought was going to be like a left of the dial college radio record so i'm intrigued now what, what do you have uh synced up next for us to all right to? so the next song is uh the lead track off of the 1989 album mine is a terrible thing to taste so real quick where you're saying this is a 35 year career so where are we now so so we're based, I'm, I'm just like starting work you know i got into them in the early 90s uh-huh. 91 92 when i first heard this band this is like my first idea of like industrial music and you know, it's like hip hop is happening. I wasn't into hip hop. Metal was happening, but metal was kind of getting stale really fast. And then I found like Ministry, and it was like the synthesis of it was samples and intense fast guitar riffs, and it just blew open the doors of what I could expect from music. But yeah, so I didn't get Jesus Built My Hot Rod on Mine Is a Terrible Thing to Taste. That was a much, this is a much different album than what Psalm 69 came out to be. But still, this song, Thieves, it did not disappoint when I heard it. I, I re-listened to it going for a walk around town the other night. I feel it holds up. I feel that this era of their catalog really holds up, and it's uh, a really interesting... We can talk a little bit about this album, and then we're going to go back to the beginning for them.
a dot matrix printer. That's what that sample is? That's what that sound is. And, uh, and then a boatload of uh, Apocalypse Now samples. Uh, you know, maybe this is a good time to try to unpack. Well, we need to kind of unpack what we're listening to here. This is late 80s. <laughs> this is late 80s. I definitely hear, like, you were talking about rap at the time was coming up. And, like, this is around Public Enemy time. Maybe. Yeah, totally. Public 89. Enemy. Um, Eric B. Rakim. Yeah, like, people, like um, Ultramagnetic Magnetic MCs. Groups with, like, dense sample-based uh, production. Which is relevant because we're hearing a lot of samples here. Yeah. And I want to say that there's kind of a hip-hop beat going on. Sure. There's, As, a, there's a song later on this record where uh, they brought in a Seattle rapper whose name I can't... I'm, I'm a, it's escaping me. But it was just like... It was like that era when everyone had like a guest rap on an album. That's amazing. But it was just... It, it wasn't as forced to say like the Sonic Youth song, the Sonic Youth uh, cool thing when they have uh, um, I can't remember who who rapped on that song, but they had a rapper out. They cut, it, they just dropped in a rap, and it's like, yeah, that's kind of corny. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really interesting. So I know that the one thing I do know about industrial music is that it started off they wanted to make music that sounded like it was in a factory. Is that uh, kind of my my off here? Yeah, help me out here. <laughs> oh man! So, industrial. The quote came from um, Monty Cazaza, who's a performance artist out of San Francisco, who was working with Throbbing Gristle in London in the late seventies when Throbbing Gristle was starting Industrial Records. Spoiler alert: Throbbing Gristle is the fourth band we will be doing an yeah, episode on. we'll be doing we'll be doing an episode on Throbbing Gristle, so it's going to be an interesting uh, arc that we have coming up. And he came up with the quote: "Industrial music for industrial people," and named their label Industrial Music. And it was as much of like a lark on just as punk was happening as new wave was happening they're like well what's this other thing that we're doing which is like this kind of austere abrasive and confrontational um performance art music and they called it industrial music and as successful as punk was and as new wave was it has become a fingerprint for and it, it hasn't stayed the same um, and a lot of the bands that, like Ministry, he's just the Ministry in particular, bands that are considered industrial, they're just like, whatever, if that's what you need to call it to sell the records, call it to sell the records. But yeah, like, so that song I hear, I definitely hear like a punk break. Yeah, I hear the, like a double bass. Was that a trunk drum d- double bass? Ah, uh, he super produces everything. Okay. Um, he produces all the records. Al Jurgensen does. He does. He does. Oh wow! Himself. Himself. Since Fuck. since Twitch. So the first two records he didn't produce, but after he worked with Adrian Sherwood in '86, he has produced everything. Because basically, he was just like, "What are you doing? This is what I want to do." And he just stole every idea that he could from Adrian Sherwood and applied it after that. Smart guy. Yeah, smart guy. Um, so back to the. This became like this idea of industrial metal. Industrial at this point was. Again, it was rhythmic, electronic music. There was the EBM scene. Electronic body music was happening with bands like Nitzareb and Front 242 and Skinny Puppy. Earlier ministries, mid-80s stuff was considered that after they hardened up a little bit after the synth-pop record. Yeah, industrial music in the 80s up to around this album coming out was basically a slightly heavier synth-pop. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, um, and we can talk about that in the suggestions later on. Um, so we're going to say here, this is where I'm going to start backtracking, because this is my entry point to ministry was, you know, Jesus Built My Hot Rod. Which was our first song we heard. Yeah, and then this song at the beginning of The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. Which came out in the late 80s. In 1989. Cool. Uh, and it's this really great nihilistic end of the Reagan era because you have to remember this is like into the Bush first Bush George first George W. Bush so it's like the two terms of Reagan and then there's his VP George W. became president so it was like three terms of you know conservative pro-corporate Reagan's America (laughs) yeah Reaganomics Reagan's America and it was it was getting pretty intense at that point Um, people were really fed up with it especially like the lefty underground scene. <laughs> yeah, you can hear it in the music definitely yeah. with with 
how fast and aggressive and yeah, how was, noisy. Yeah, like, it was fuck this. Yeah, Let's tear everything down. And it's even the idea of like post punk. It's you know everyone took like the idea of like punk music and it just it fed back on itself so much in the eighties. Yeah, with hardcore, hardcore, and then SST. and SST records, and yeah, then like all these other other bands and then like the crossover thrash that started happening actually they were a big influence on this period of ministry the band sod um which features members of and billy milano from mod and danny logler from nuclear assault and scott Ian, i think charlie Belente from anthrax right <laughs> why have i haven't thought about this band in like five years <laughs> yet i could name off all the members very impressive uh, <laughs> we are music nerds we are doing a podcast yeah so it's like they just did like really fast short punk type songs and that was a big influence on Al Jurgensen going into making this album um, guitars started percolating in but it was still predominantly electronic synthesizer music and then this record he was just like it's a full band so what I'm sorry which record are we on now we're still on th- mine is a ter- the mind is a terrible gotcha. thing to taste so, now, um, so this is the first time it's not it's not Al Solo right this, this is, is the first band uh, and this album was like iconoclastic at the time because people were like oh Ministry were great until they started playing guitars and became heavy metal interesting and you know that was like people that were a few years older than me in the goth industrial scene uh, and they're just kind of like bitching about how this was the record that killed ministry. And then people that are like <laughs> my age were just like, oh, this next record is the one that killed ministry. And then people are even after that be like, oh, well, this is the last record for ministry because they go through arcs. They change lineups. Key players drop in and out. I'm realizing every band that we're doing is not like, you know, this is the same band members forever. It's this. There's these really complicated Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. One of the things is at Ministry was Al Jurgensen at this point, Paul Barker, bass, uh, Bill Reefland on drums, and a slew of hired hands playing second guitar and other instruments. Chris Connolly was a key player. He came in from the Revolting Cox camp. Mike Scasia from this Texas thrash band, uh, Rigor Mortis, started entering the band around this time. But apparently, Al Jurgensen and Paul Barker and Bill Rieflin. It was like they they were like a hired rhythm section for the band on like one of the tours and then just stayed and they did not get along. In the memoir, Al Jurgensen talks about how it would be him and maybe William Tucker, who was another guitarist, maybe had a better relationship with Bill Rieflin at that point. But he called these people the book club because <laughs> they were like fake nerdy intellectuals. And he was like kind of like the hard rolling rock and roller, like you know, it was like fucking groupies doing drugs, and uh, and they were just like, you know, they just wanted to be musicians. But they were hired hands that came in as like on an earlier tour and then just stayed afterwards. So is Ministry a big band? At its peak, it was like eight or nine members. Crazy. It was like two drummers, a keyboardist, three guitarists, a bassist. I don't want to throw you off your game, but I'm sitting here. I don't know much about them. But I do remember seeing that movie AI with Stanley Kubrick's last one that Spielberg took over. And was the ministry was in there. They were. It was actually a really interesting story. Um, I've been listening. To, I just read that part of the book recently. And I listened to a couple interviews where he's talking about it. Apparently what happened is um, shortly before Kubrick died, uh, when he was starting this movie, he got a hold of Al Jurgensen's phone number. And he was like, I just called him personally which took him like three tries to get through to al jurgensen because al jurgensen's like yeah right you're stanley kubrick who the hell are you stop bothering me because <laughs> what would you do if like stanley kubrick just called you on the phone Fuck, like man. no like who are you like you're screwing with me yeah. um he wanted the band to be in the movie and he had his whole how they were going to tie into it and they went and they recorded the music for the movie and did their their work for it and then kubrick died and then when spielberg picked it up Spielberg was like, yeah, you know, we're taking over the movie. It's in Kubrick's notes that he was going to work with you guys. Do you still, we still want you to be part of it. And he's like, yeah, no, totally. We have all this. We have the music recorded. We have all this material ready to go. And they're like, okay, you know, they agreed to pay them for, you know, still pay them for the product that they had. They still got to be involved in the movie. Now, I, I, I bring that up because I remember I didn't know the band ministry and I was watching that movie in the theater. And then I saw this like crazy weird yeah i guess it was ministry this electronic 
But I remember there being a lot of members in the on the big what screen. Year, what year was that? Was that like ninety nine? Well, it was after Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, we need so, to do our research better. So that was probably <laughs> early two thousand. Early two thousand. So that yeah. was probably like ninety nine two thousand. Yeah, I think that Ministry was still doing like the really big band at that point. Yeah. I think in the studio they were pretty much a tighter unit, but they were a bigger live band. Whereas I think now they're touring with just like just as like a four or five piece, not like a ten piece band. Thirty five years later. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, that was interesting. So like he was telling the story about like when they got to meet Steven Spielberg and they were like you know, they went out and they met him and they're on the set and the Spielberg's aides like, Okay, this is the band, you're like you can't don't look him in the eyes, don't touch it, you know, don't try to shake his hand or anything and Hal Jurgensen immediately went up to him and he's like Oh, thanks for having us in the project. And he's like, really excited to be working on this movie, AI. And you're like, yeah, okay, great. He's like, I thought this was, but but I thought this was supposed to be a porno. Isn't it called Anal Intruder? <laughs> to fuck with him. <laughs> and Spiel, it took it like knocked Spielberg off his game Good. for he's a little bit. But it became like it became like a running joke between them that Spielberg would come up to him every day and be like, oh yeah, what about Animal Inappropriate? <laughs> May I add that uh, what's the name of this book that we're referencing? Uh, the Lost Gospels, according to Al Jurgensen. So in this memoir, Al Jurgensen's on the cover, and he is one fucking ugly dude. No offense, he, he I'm is. not beautiful myself, but he's ugly. I want to say he looks like the guy fox mask that the anonymous he, he, wears. He does, and he's, his face is much rounder and puffier because he's been an alcoholic for so long. I was gonna say, is that plastic surgery or just? Yeah, like, I think that's makeup and dramatic lighting. Oh, he looks evil. Yeah, so he's a. So I can imagine being Steven Spielberg seeing this ugly fucking. Guy. Yeah, I know they were like given like this rep of like. Oh, they're crazy, and they're like they're known for brawling and all like and like you know hotel smashing shit. And they're like, you don't want to go near them, <laughs> you don't want to hang out with them. But by the end of the shoot, he was you know hanging out with them and jamming with them and cool. and you know being buddies. Speaking uh, of jamming out, I feel like we've been talking a lot. Do you have anything else queued up for us? I do. Um, so yeah, as we jumped around a little bit, let's go back to the beginning of the band. Awesome. Um, Al Jurgensen had like kind of a complicated growing up. He was a son of Cuban immigrants. His father was never really in the picture. He was basically raised by his grandmother because his mother was like 18 or 19 when she had him and apparently spent a lot of her time trying to land a husband after she had a kid and they moved to the States. So he spent a lot of time with his grandmother and grandfather. And then when his grandmother finally married, it was with a, a Norwegian man named Jurgensen, which is why he has a a Norwegian last name and being from Cuba. Cool. And they moved to uh, event, you know, Chicago and then Colorado, and he bounced back and forth between the two areas. And eventually in 79, he joined a band called Special Effects, which I'm not going to play any of because it's kind of mediocre. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. I, I did download the music, and uh, it's interesting because on vocals is Groovy Man from My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, one of their parallel... Uh, partners in crime on the Wax Tracks label, and also the drummer from Concrete Blonde. So they were kind of like a super group or early super group. Uh, they weren't. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a super group. But they would but go on to be. They would go on to do more prominent things. Excellent. So it's interesting to see like these weird little bands that existed, and you know, it's like, oh yeah, they cut like one self-released album in a seven-inch and promptly broke up. But all these people like went off to do greater things, and then after that band fizzled out, Al moved back from. I think special effects moved to California to try and make it. And he moved back to Chicago. Um, I guess he had like his art school trendy girlfriend that was turning him on to like punk rock and new wave and new order and joy division and all the hip shit. And he started, he got a, a four track reel to reel and just started recording stuff in his basement. Eventually he got a bunch of songs together, which became the cold life single, which he pitched to wax tracks records, which was a, the cool record shop that was starting a label at the time. Uh, apparently, this was the second record that the label put out. Maybe the third. The first one being a Divine seven-inch single. The actress, Div actress Divine from the John Waters movies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, what city was this in? Chicago. Is it Chicago? Yeah. Uh, Ministry is basically throughout the '80s and early '90s a Chicago band. Cool. So, let's hear. And this song actually became kind of a a, a mild college radio hit. Got re-released in UK, the UK by the label Situation 2, which is uh, part of the Beggar's Banquet family, which is known for, you know, Bauhaus, the Colts. Some gothy shit. The gothy shit. You know, that was like the other, you know, the big alternative labels in the England. So this is Ministry's early foundation. Let's do it. 
It's a way different band, right? Have you seen the look of the yeah? You're, you're my perturbed. Face? <laughs> I'm, I'm very you're totally confused. perturbed. Now imagine. <laughs> n- now, now imagine me like <laughs> when I get a copy of the compilation tape, twelve inch singles, and I'm hearing this on there, being like, "This is ministry still." Like, what is? It was really confounded when I made the jump from the metal ministry yeah. to the early stuff. But yeah, I, this is 1981, and as far as I can tell, like pretty much all him recorded on a four Impressive. Track. Yeah. I mean, I can't play bass like that, can you? No. I've been <laughs> trying to play bass since 1998. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm hearing like Liquid Liquid, No Wave stuff. I just wasn't expecting this. Yeah, no, because he was... This is a product of everything he was listening to. He was listening to all that, like, factory records, trendy... Yeah, and you're saying he's like an art school kid, kind of, right? Yeah. I don't think he was necessarily an art school, but he had a a girlfriend who was an art school performance art student, and she was into all the hip shit and turned him on to it. I don't mean to project Al Jurgensen onto myself, but I'm kind of like a mixed-race guy, and you're saying he's part Cuban and part... Oh, he's all Cuban. Oh, he's all Cuban? Yeah. Oh, man. No, his uh, father, his grandfather was like a like a crazy, like a really prominent, like, agricultural scientist, and they fled Cuba in the late 60s when Castro took over. His family left the country. Because I was going to say that, you know, sometimes when you're trying to find identity... You just grab all these influences. Oh sure, no, like if I'm not, I'm not going into like Al Jurgensen's like tales of being like a wild youth, but he was definitely like a kind of a lost, weird, didn't know how to fit in. I can imagine because to play, okay, let's take a second to talk about. I might not. I mean, I guess I like the song. I'm just confused by it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, there's definitely talent here. And yeah, to, to play all these instruments. Well, this is impressive. This is he had this song and like a handful of other demos cut. I think they released like ultimately this is like a four-song EP um, with "I'm Falling," which is sounds kind of like early Cure. Um, another instrumental called "Primental," which got recycled into one of the the opulent synth pop songs on <laughs> "With Sympathy," uh, and I think there's just like just like a, a dub remix of this song. So again, is this his first official release? This is the first official ministry release. Cool. So we, this is great to go back to the first song we heard. There's a big world of difference. Oh yeah, and ten years to go from this to Jesus built my hot rod. You know, I'm getting excited now. I'm, I'm, I like this early stuff a lot. I just that I think you would threw me off. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So this, you know, it was a moderate college hit. It got picked up in the UK by Situation 2, like I said. And I guess what it was is he put a band together and then found themselves bankrupt really fast. Because the, so you're an indie band. It's hard to break out as an indie band, especially when you're like a solo, basically a solo artist trying to, you know, fund your career with hired musicians. And when I'm reading in that book, uh, This Band Could Be Your Life, is that there wasn't the venues that exist today. Oh, right. That you, you know, a lot about Black Flag, who was one of the first, the first hardcore band, I guess. They had a, they had to travel the United States and find places to play, and then yeah. other bands followed them. So yeah, I can see. So '81, yeah, this is this is really early yeah. on. All right, so I'm just gonna let the segue right into the next song, which is off the 1983 album with Sympathy. So we're going from '81 to '83. Yep, we're gonna start going in chronology. Chronological order. So yeah, like I was saying, he was broke and spent a couple of years negotiating contracts, had all this material, and then finally signed a deal with Arista Records to do with Sympathy. Arista's a major, right? Uh, yeah, pretty big. Yeah, uh, I feel like Whitney Houston was on Arista. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, what he basically what he said is he uh, wanted to negotiate the contract, like worked really hard on negotiating contracts, so they didn't get screwed over, didn't get like you know he didn't have like the blind enthusiasm to just sign on to a label. Smart, I would have done that. <laughs> and uh, the first person to hand him cash and be like, okay, go record your album, and then like a year later, be like, why am I still broke? This album's selling like a hundred thousand copies. So he's a, he's talented. He's, he sounds like a smart guy too. He is. He is. He's very known as a smart person. But uh, this situation with Arista really burned him uh, because he came in with, I guess I would say, sharper songs than the label wanted to release. And 
they really polished it. Forced his hand to make sh more uh, bubblegum material, more glossy material Some than radio he wanted. Hits. Yeah, wanted to make radio hits. They wanted him to. I think there was like a big success of this song in the gay club community. Great. Because he had that nice little faux British accent. So yeah. they kind of wanted to make that version of Human League. They kind of wanted to, I think they wanted to have an American Human League on their hands. Now, is this the song that you put on one of my mixes? Uh, I was trying to remember which one I put on your mix. Oh. I think this is it. This is not the extended version that uh, I put on. I'm not going to play the, 12, the seven minute 12 inch <laughs> version, which is, uh, but yeah, this is, I wanted to tell her. Yes, this is it. It's, uh, I love this song. And this will be a fun album to talk about too because it's so. It's got some really great songs on it. It's got some really blame songs on it. Let's do it.
Do you like this uh, production technique I'm bringing in of like doing the fading out the song and talking over it? You are the radio DJ, man. <laughs> 20 years of college radio didn't do nothing for me, man. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Again, we can talk about how weird and all the curveballs that ministry threw at me as a teenager. So I was like really into... Uh, when did I pick this up? I think I picked this up Fall 92. So I had like... Oh, right after you got into it. Yeah, right after. I, so I had Thieves. I, bought, I picked that up like early that spring. Listened to it all summer long. Um... I think I had dubbed off my cousin, like, onto a recycled C90 like, that I stole from my mom, like, most of With Sympathy, and, or not With Sympathy, Psalm 69, so I had, like, you know, NWO, Just One Fix, Jesus Built My Hot Rod, all those songs on there already, and then I was at the mall, and I was like, oh, do I, I want to get one of the earlier records, do I want to get Switch, or this one, or Land of Rape and Honey, and I decided to go with the very first album. Cool. I was really uncomfortable. <laughs> it made me feel really uncomfortable listening to this album. I did not understand, like, what, and I've grown to love it. Right. I saw you dance. You were dancing this whole oh, time. Oh, yeah. No, I was definitely, like, doing <laughs> disco pointing and goofy, goofy shit. But, like, I was in a... It threw you off. It threw me off. This isn't this is industrial. This isn't industrial. This is like, and I I had like an appreciation of Human League and like you know the 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 new wave hits that I grew up with, right? But this was just it was yeah, like I said, like I feel like it really pushed things in like a very homoerotic direction. I mean, the song itself lyrically, it's definitely like a male female romance uh, deteriorating thing. But it's just like it's like this really makes me feel like. Right, yeah, then, yeah. Like, you at know, that age, when I was that age too, I was really afraid of, you know, I, I was afraid of my sexuality when I was that age too. Sure, sure. And You're now insecure I'm, about it. You're I was insecure about it, but now I, I love everyone <laughs> and I think everything's great. It takes you a while to figure things out. Yeah. But like, you know, this is like one of the things where I can sit there and talk about it. Like, you know, if it wasn't for ministry, I wouldn't be interested in 90% of the music that I'm into now. This is really exciting because we heard the first song off the top of the episode and we're in a whole new realm here. Like this is what I'm excited about yeah, doing so. this podcast is delving into these discographies and like this is such an interesting band. I'm glad we chose them and I'm and I'm, and, and I see why they're such a huge <laughs> influence on you. They what a broad. Right. And this is just through the 80s. But uh yeah, so actually I was listening to on YouTube today. Arista did a, a promo interview cassette to send out to radio stations and wrote notes down at work, which I left at work. <laughs> But at, professional it was, here. Yeah, <laughs> professional here. So in the interview, they're talking about, you know, just like the, the album. And you can just hear Al Jurgensen talking about all the things that he's still talks about in interviews. Like all his attitudes about uh, working with record companies, about making music. He's a really passionate, driven, and intelligent musician. Some of his lyrics aren't super great. But this period, he had like a lot of really solid synth pop material and the label and the management and the producers really forced it to go in this really bubblegum glossy direction in the in the book there's uh, segments called interventions which are interviews with other people that in the you know tangentially involved with ministry um, and one of them is uh, i think sasha Kanoitsko from kmfdm because ministry you're dropping a lot of industrial bands yeah me now. Wax, it's a, they're a wax tracks band yeah they're a band that al jurgensen heard found out about when he was staying in europe and was like i want them to open for us on the mind is a terrible thing to taste tour so they got the call and they're like oh ministry who's this and then he's like the only record i could find in the stores was the synth pop record <laughs> and this was like in 89 so like as they were about to do the the mind is a terrible thing to taste tour you know, they're just like, oh, we got to really tone back what we're doing so we're not like overpowering this other band. And then they get out and they watch their rehearsals and they see like the 10 piece industrial metal onslaught that Mr. Ministry had become. And they're like, oh, oh, oh we're okay. So <laughs> things changed. <laughs> so I don't know much about Ministry and you put a different version of that track. That was my first time hearing right. this song. And you gave me the 12 inch tr version and. I first heard it, and I heard like this New Order-ish kind of... Oh, totally. And I remembered later when we were trying to flush out to this podcast, I was like, oh, and he must be... A, is he from British? We're doing too many British bands. And you're like, no, he's from Chicago. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's like one of the things, one of the jags. But it's also 
it was the early 80s and a lot of the successful radio bands like doing the alternative thing you had new order you had depeche mode um psychedelic furs um half the sire ross smiths like that entire sire roster that was still popular now is they were all British. That's interesting, yeah. It was like this like weird like second wave British invasion. It always goes back and forth. It's really neat. Uh, one of the things that they Between did... Between England and USA. Th- this, this record is such... You know, because it's like 82 to 84 was the Arista period. Or maybe even 82 and 83. And Ministry got stuck opening a tour that was Madness, Culture Club... And the police. This is amazing. I and it's just like, could you imagine? <laughs> like, they're just like, yeah, we're the band opening for that. And they're, they're that makes lo- sense. They're, and it makes sense. At this you know, time, like, yeah. that's that's something that the label's going to push. I think Police were another Arista band. I think we were talking about. They were kind of punk back then. Oh, is this like, when they were? They, this, this is was, when they were kind of getting to. No, be this poppy. was uh, Every Breath You Take. Oh, gross. this was like <laughs> this was like their peak. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, because we were looking at the the top hits at that time, and I was like, oh yeah, around the time this album came out, that was. In 80, summer 83, that was, like, the number one signal for, like, six weeks. Oh, was there a breath you take? Yeah. Give us a little bit of a feeling. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeding in the, uh, what was the number one hit That's when okay, this came out. That's okay, you. Uh, I have some of them written down, but it's mostly Prince songs. <laughs> <laughs> the 80s was Prince, baby. That's cool. Um, yeah, so they did this record, and he was so pissed off and upset about how they, he, he just, like, wore off the record. Basically, was just, like, told the label to keep it, do whatever they want with it. He's just like, I need out of this contract. And he went back to Wax Tracks, went back to home recording, and started cutting some other, what became the really iconic mid-80s ministry singles. You know, I coming into this, I thought it would be all that Jesus Built My Hot Rod stuff, and I wasn't really excited for ministry. I know they're an important band, but... Yeah, I'm I'm definitely becoming a fan now. Yeah, so early stuff. So yeah, they after this they signed he signed with Sire Records, uh, still essentially a solo artist under the moniker Ministry, and he decided to work with Adrian Sherwood, and he got Sire Records to buy him a Fairlight synthesizer, one of those. Break, you know, like rocket from. Uh, oh, do? I could hear that. There. Yeah, yeah, like that. That's a fair light right there. Gotcha. And he went to Berlin and recorded Twitch with Adrian Sherwood producing. Adrian Sherwood, who does the On You Sound dub label, was basically like this huge pioneer in the '80s of like electronic dub music, like this weird fusion. Still, his production holds up really well. He's actually the guy that when we were talking about Trent Reznor, Trent Reznor to do Pretty Hate Machine hired Adrian Sherwood to help him replicate the sound of Ministry's Twitch. And music history was and, music, and music history kept going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's hear Over the Shoulder and see what how Adrian Sherwood helped gloss up the, uh, the rough edges of Every Day is Halloween. You gotta love the heavy, heavy Fairlight sound. So one of the interesting things with the contract for this um, album is that Al took all his royalties, or a large portion of his royalties, and had it reinvested into Wax Tracks Records. Whoa, interesting. Yeah. So he became kind of like a part, a business partner with them, and that allowed them to grow as a label. So you were telling me earlier that he also 
his hit that the songs that he had were kind of were their their big hits. Yeah, yeah, definitely at that point he was like the big the, the flagship artist for the label. Cool, what a cool guy. I'm into yeah, him. yeah, he did good stuff. Um, and this also gets into the the mid late '80s, which is when the side projects began. <laughs> oh my god okay this sounds um, like a good place to wrap up before yeah, we get a side so, project land so <laughs> yeah we're gonna i guess we'll wind down the episode as we're almost hitting like an hour and a half mark here um but this was like a benchmark album for quote-unquote ebm the electronic body music this is my first time hearing ebm i i obviously today we have edm electronic e- dance music yeah in the <laughs> 80s it was electronic body music <laughs> Um, what an 80s spin on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So I should I should come up with a good uh, um, suggestion artist to wrap up it. Wrap up the episode. Sure. Yeah. Right? Definitely. I'm going to recommend Front Two Four Two, another Wax Tracks band, a band that uh, Al Jurgensen helped bring over to the states. So if you're enjoying the mid-80s, harder, wax track sound, um, I recommend just going on to Discogs and start digging into what wax tracks put out. Many, many really fascinating records. 